This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. First thing let's do is let's still our hearts and let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you for this good night, these good people, and this good cause. We ask that you would just calm our hearts and calm our minds. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May this be a good night, a night of your spirit being among us and your love being felt, and we pray that your spirit will speak to us and that we will learn good things, helpful things, and may we be good to one another, and may love prevail. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So something I'd like to do, what I said I was going to do tonight, and I plan on doing in just a moment, is I wanted to tell you my story with this issue, just kind of my journey with this issue of LGBT inclusion. Now, telling you my story is different than me doing a 16-week study on this subject and being exhaustive and um, teaching in detail all of these things. There's no way that I could compact that or compress that into one evening. What I can do, and I said I would do, is just as a Christian, as a believer, and as someone who takes scripture and the heart of God seriously and people seriously, I'm just gonna give you an overview, a 30,000 feet overview of my journey with this this subject. And um, all of you have to do the same thing. You have to take your journey with this subject as you do with all subjects. So I'm gonna do that And then at the end, hopefully, we'll have some time for questions. Before we get started with my piece of that, I wanted just to take a a minute. Do we have microphones? And I want you to think just, let's take five or six minutes, and I want you to think about this question. If you had one question that you could ask about the subject of LGBT inclusion, what would that question be? And I would love for some of you just to um, stand up. Maybe we can get 10, 12, 15, maybe 20 people to stand up and say, this is the one question, the primary question. I have lots of questions. This is the primary question that I have on this particular subject. And please don't take three minutes to give an explanation or an answer, but this is your question. And if we can do that kind of pithy, then we'll get a lot of them, and I think that would be very helpful to me. Would, would somebody start the way and just say, this would be my question that I have about, about this. this? Anybody? Brian. How do you, mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you reconcile biblical scriptures on homosexuality with a stance of inclusion in a church? How do you reconcile the six passages, the six major passages in the text. How many of you are from an evangelical background? That would be our question. That's right. Um, others, others. Let me ask you this. How many, that would be your primary question? Okay. Darman. Pastor, for those of us that are still on the journey, are still in the conversation, that don't have that reconciliation, where's the place for us with Grace Point going forward? That's a good question. Other questions? 
So for me, um, I'm Rob Rhinelander. Um, is it a choice? Is it from birth? Or, or can there be both? Nature or nurture? Others, primary question. Do all of y'all have no questions on this? Why are you here if you have no question? Um, my understanding from your teachings a lot of your theory kind of rests on the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know if I'm correct on that, but if it is, then what other topics does that relate to? How is it similar to this, and how is it different? That's a great question. Others? Go ahead, Bruce, and then Jason. Uh, my question is, will someone that labels themselves as having unwanted same-sex attraction, will they be as welcomed as LG? Unwanted same-sex attraction, right? Yes. Yeah. Someone Will they be as welcome? That for themselves. Yeah. My question is: Considering um, culturally so many um, issues within the church that have been reconciled, if that's the word we want to use, um, and there's a whole list of them, uh, why do you believe this one has taken so long to reconcile? There's some that say, I can't believe we're even still in this conversation, and yet the church has taken so long to reconcile this. And do you think this is, or one of the last prejudices for the church to reconcile? Thank you, Jason. Yes. My question is, for the people who are against the inclusion, where does all the anger come from? Where does the anger, the, in, yeah, the intense response? Um, my question is, do, do you think that homosexual sexual acts, monogamous, are sinful or not? Is it a, is it a sin within the confines of a monogamous relationship? Others? Yep, here. If we are considering this a sin, then what about all the other sinners in the room? Why, is, why are we focusing on this sin when we are all sinners? Beyond reconciling those six or so verses to the position, what in the broader scriptures lead us to total inclusion? Beyond just reconciling those six. Yeah, are those six the only texts that we use on this yeah. issue? Yeah. That's a great question. Well, he basically asked my question because I want to have very sound biblical uh, verses because I am totally for the inclusion. It's like the lady said, what makes anybody different? We're all sinners saved by grace. Um, and I just wanted some good Bible verses to not refute or argue, but just to peacefully give other people mm -hmm. who give the other verses. Right. Good. Anybody else? It's very helpful. Uh, Chris. I'm trying to wrap my head around the question. I don't know how to frame it, so I'll just say it. How does this affect um, heterosexual uh, divorce? And, and mainly in, in your in your predicament. What, what relation does it have with the issue of, of divorce? Yeah, I'm, and I, again, I'm, I apologize. I don't know how to really frame it, but I'm, I, I think there's a bigger issue. 
that I'm trying to come to grips with, and that's divorce in heterosexual marriage, um, and especially amongst our pastors. Which, by the way, was the conversation 50 years ago, 50 to 20 years ago, so that's good. I mean, it's definitely connected. Others? Back this way, okay. Terry. How do we know when we're at the edge of inclusion? And does inclusion have an edge? In other words, how far does it go and how do yeah. we know when we're there? You hear uh, how far does inclusion go, uh, issues of the slippery slope, what's next, all of, all of that. I'd like to ask, where do the families get ministry if not a church like this, the families of the gay and lesbian community? We had nowhere to go except prayer partners. So you're a blessing to parents and families. That's probably the number one group that I've gotten emails from is mothers. Lots of mothers. All right. Sam, yes, Kev. It just the question around inclusion. Embrace the acceptance, and it's been a, a good part of my journey. I, my question is: Has the inclusion always included marriage? And if it has, so I, has it always included marriage? And if not, why marriage? Why now? Why marriage at Grace Point? Is that is that a separate issue that we're just now hearing about, or has that always been part of the inclusion plan? Good, good question. One more. Well. Um, I am a mother of a son who feels he's gay, and um, I say that because he was prophesied before he was ever conceived, and, and um, I feel that, I'm here tonight because I feel that this coming out makes it, us even look more intolerant because we love him, we support him, we, he's welcome, his person he's living with is welcome in our home, but we can't condone his lifestyle, so that's where... I don't know if that's a question, but I just... It's a statement, and it's a fair statement. You got, you got flesh in the game with the son. So the, the church has, little as 50 years ago, pretty much had no position on this subject. It was, it was a non-sequitur. It was just a non-issue to a great degree because culturally it was um, such a repressed idea and such a repressed concept Somewhere around 50 years ago, um, societally, people with same-sex attraction began to come into the light uh, more frequently and at higher levels. Uh, probably the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, there was a real advent of people from the same-sex community or the LGBT community coming into the light. When, when we begin to recognize that there were indeed this group of people, anywhere the estimates range from 3 to 12 percent of society, it was then that the church began to have to take a position on this particular issue. Um, this is a broad stroke, but it seems that our first take on this issue, and many of you are of the age that you can remember this, is that it was simply an abomination. And I see the heads already nodding. It was an abomination. It was as bad an abomination as we could imagine and it was abhorrent, and it was strange, and we couldn't wrap our mind around it, and we just knew it was the worst of the worst. 
Um, that attitude was incredibly prevalent within the church, the traditional church, uh, strongly until the 80s, at which point the AIDS crisis hit. And if you remember, especially from the evangelical community and even traditional orthodox community, when the AIDS crisis hit, do you remember what our reaction to the AIDS crisis was? Yeah, we all remember what it was. We knee-jerked immediately, quoted Romans 1, that men leaving the natural use of a woman burned in their lust one toward another, also women doing the same thing, receiving in themselves the recompense of their reward, which was justified. So the AIDS crisis was immediately diagnosed by most within that community as the judgment of God. Interestingly, as we engaged the AIDS crisis and as we um, moved into the AIDS crisis, it began to become clear that the AIDS crisis was not only impacting people with same-sex attraction or same-sex activity, but it was also impacting heterosexual people as well. And not only heterosexual people or homosexual people that were living lascivious lifestyles, but normal people through transfusions. And the broader the AIDS crisis got, the more we began to back off with some sense of sensitivity to this issue, this idea that it was indeed the judgment of God. Uh, the other thing that caused us to begin to back off is the AIDS crisis deeply humanized this category, this group of people that we didn't know. It humanized them. It put flesh tones on this label, this name, this abomination. And as we begin to live with this group of people who are deeply hurting and dying, we begin naturally as Christian people, Christian loving people, to have this edge a bit shaved off of our judgment and our attitude. Through the 90s, as a result of the AIDS crisis and this humanizing of this group of people, through the 90s, most churches, even traditional churches, conservative churches, began to take the approach of welcoming. And it, and it made all the sense in the world to us because we had always been welcoming of all people, right? And as we began to think about this, we began to say things like, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner, and what makes one sin worse than another sin, and why are we picking on this sin above all the other sins, and are there really sins that are more abhorrent than others? And so we we kind of begin to lose our abomination edge toward this group, and we said, well, sure, they're welcome, and we begin to invite them into the church. Well, proximity to this group of people <clears throat> began to sensitize us further, and we began to recognize that we had welcomed them in just as we had welcomed all sinners in, and we began to recognize that to some degree we said we're all sinners, and none of us had quit sinning completely yet, so we began to face this, this kind of odd realization that we were treating them as somehow less in the community than the rest of us sinners. So we began to extend the welcome to an inclusive position of, you know what, you can even be involved to a point, to a point. And their involvement began to be deeper. They began to be more active. Interestingly, we have never refused their tithe and offering yet. We've never done that, but we begin to recognize and begin to welcome them further and further, further in. And, and then some of our strong leaders like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and Andy Stanley and Tim Keller in New York begin to even sense, and a large church here in town, Crosspoint, Pete Wilson, a great guy, 
um, churches like this began to say, you know, it's, it's really inconsistent of us to allow all of us with our brokenness, our gluttony, our envy, our besetting sin, levels of involvement that we don't give to this group of people because of their sin. And so we began to let them even move further toward positions of leadership and involvement and activity. And the thing that we said to them was essentially, you know what, we've got our sin, you've got your sin, we can all work together and abide together and be covered by the grace of God. And we're not going to police this as tightly as we've policed it. And, you know, that, that sounded kind of right. But for the couple who had been in a monogamous, life-giving relationship that they would call marriage for 24 years, it began to be somewhat hurtful and distasteful to them for us to look at them and say, you know what, you've got your sin and I've got my sin, we can work together. How would you feel if somebody looked at your life-giving marriage and called it your sin? And they begin to push back and say, you know what, you're right. We do have our sin and you've got your sin, but this isn't it. And for you to talk about the most precious thing in our life as our sin became distasteful. So the real question um, has moved past, do we all have our sin and can we all work together? The real question now for most of us is, is this sin? Well, the question that begs in all of that is, do we believe in sin? Well, yes, absolutely we believe in sin. I believe in sin. I believe it's a sin in the, in the strictest, most general sense. Is sim uh, I simply believe it this way. I think we have a God, and I think that God is deeply involved with us. And I think that God who's deeply involved with us has ideas about how our lives should be lived. I don't think God is without ideas about how our lives should be lived. I think God has ideas about how we should treat one another, how we should treat our children, how, she, how we should live life. And I think generally the biblical idea of sin is any missing the mark of God's idea. However, God thinks we should live our life. God's God, and we assume that since he's the one that put all this together, he has the best ideas about all of this stuff. And if we miss the mark of how God thinks we should live, that's sin. The question is, two people with same-sex attraction living in a monogamous relationship a marriage, a lifelong commitment with fidelity and faithfulness. Two people who deeply believe that this is who they are and have been since the day they were born, if they, in a life-giving relationship, commit to monogamy and fidelity, is that sin? Is that missing the mark of God's idea? I have come to a place in my journey that I do not believe it's sin. I do not believe that it's sin. So I am... I am not in that position of they have their sin, we have our sin, and why are we judging one another? I personally, biblically, conceptually do not believe that that monogamous relationship is sinful. That's my position. Now, how did I get there? My journey with LGBT inclusion, I've been 31 years in Christian ministry. My journey with LGBT inclusion did not begin with the LGBT variation of inclusion. My journey with this subject began with the issue of inclusion itself. And that began for me 25 and a half years ago. I grew up in the United Pentecostal Church, which is an incredibly sectarian, little Pentecostal movement. Anybody from the UPC, anybody have a UPC background? 
we believed, and this is not a joke, they're wonderful people, but we believed that we were God's only people. We believed, anybody from a Church of Christ background? Y'all had a little dab of that, didn't you? Anybody from a Catholic background? Y'all had a big dab of that, didn't you? We weren't the only exclusivistic group. Some of you know what it means. Not most of you from a Baptist, Methodist, Nazarene background, you knew that your version was the best version and you were definitely God's favorite, but you knew he would let some other folk in begrudgingly one day. We didn't think he was gonna let anybody in begrudgingly. We knew, this is, it, it's, it, it sounds funny, but it's terribly sad. We knew that Baptists were lost. We knew that Assembly of God and Church of God were lost. We didn't spend our time trying to convert pagans and Hindus. We spent our time trying to bring free will Baptist into the light. We were trying to save the already saved. So we were incredibly exclusivistic. So exclusivistic that the group that I grew up with treated any type of literature, Christian literature written by someone other than our group, we treated that as propaganda especially in the lives of young Christians or young ministers. Some of the more seasoned ministers could read what we called external literature, but not the younger ministers. Because if we read, some, if we read something by Charles Swindoll, the devil might slip in, twist our mind, and we might be led astray and believe a lie and be damned. And I, I held to that until one day, a United Methodist neighbor lady of mine. I was a 21-year-old young preacher. I'd been evangelizing for three years, almost every night of the week, all over the country. And my United Methodist neighbor lady innocently came to me and said, I know you're a preacher. Of course, they knew I was a preacher. She said, I, I got some books, and I want you to have them. And she gave me three books by an author named Max Licato. It was his first three books, On the Anvil, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, and God Came Near. You remember those? Yes. Still his best stuff, I think. And I took those books, and I remember holding them and feeling like I was in the wilderness with Jesus, and Satan was coming to tempt me. And I remember I put those books underneath my bed and left them there. And periodically, I would pull them out and look at them. And ultimately, under the cover of night, behind a locked door, I read those books. And I was so moved by those books. I can still name dozens of the chapters in those books. I was so moved by those books that I began preaching messages out of them. I felt no moral compunction to annotate at all or to give credit because he wasn't saved so I didn't have to treat him like a brother so I just used the material and preached it and people loved it and I, I Pentecostalized it as much as I could but I preached it and it was fantastic material and it ate away at my soul and the question that ate away at my soul was how does a man who is lost write so profoundly and move me and then through me move all of these saved people. And I begin to frame the question, is Max Licato, that's where the issue of inclusion started for me, it was Max Licato. Is Max Licato really 
lost. And then I began to think about all of the people around me, the Baptists, the Nazarene, the Church of Christ people that I knew. There was never one day that the biblical text I was reading caused me to re-examine my theology and say, you know, I don't think our theology is exactly right here. Our theology, our principle of exclusion is exactly right. There was never one day I was reading the Bible and decided to look at people differently. It started for me with people, and I was asking the question, is Billy Graham really going to hell? You say, well, that's a ridiculous idea. It wasn't for us. And it wasn't for the Church of Christ people or the Catholic people in this room. Exclusion is a bigger idea and a bigger issue than just the matter of LGBT inclusion. And as I begin to wrap my mind around all of these people, the necessary thing for somebody like myself who valued Scripture, our movement obviously valued Scripture, was I was then driven back to the text, not abstractly, but incarnationally, through human beings and contact and experience with humans, I was driven back to the text, and the question when I went back to the text was, am I reading this right? Because the way I've been reading this mandates that these people are lost, but my experience of these people, intuitively something feels wrong that these people are actually gonna go to hell and burn forever. And so it was that intuition that drove me back to the text to ask the question, have I been reading the text properly? You know, we always say, well, the Bible says. Well, the truth of the matter is the Bible doesn't say. The Bible reads. The Bible reads. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible reads. And the Bible reads the way who reads it? You read it. You do realize the Bible reads a lot of different ways in this room tonight, don't you? Do you think everybody in this room reads the Bible exactly the same way? You know why there's 39,700 denominations? Because the Bible reads. Now, somebody somewhere said something, and somebody somewhere a long time ago wrote something down. We even believe that process was inspired. But Jesus, in his ministry in the Sermon on the Mount, He told those that were sitting there that day, he said, you have heard it said. He didn't even say it said. He said, you heard it say. And then he went on to further clarify. He wasn't clarifying and saying that the text had ever made a mistake, but the mistake was the way you heard it. And it was that sense that drove me back to the text, and I asked myself the question, is there another way of reading this. And I, at 21 years old, began the journey, and it was a horrifying journey. It was a scary journey, because when you begin to expand your conscience, what is your conscience? Your conscience is not the voice of God. Your conscience is your sincerest attempt to ascertain what the voice of God is saying. Somebody said, if you follow your conscience, you're following God. Well, to an extent, But your conscience is not the clear voice of God. Your conscience is your best attempt to follow the voice of God. And this matter of stretching and moving your conscience, when you have believed all of your life, when you've believed 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, per your conscience that this is what God says, to consider 
that you may have been wrong to consider a different way of hearing the voice of God, to consider that God may be saying something different is a slow and a grinding and careful process. I think it's what Peter was talking about when he said, seek out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Be careful with this. I always tell two pe people there are two things that you need to do with your conscience. Number one, don't transgress it. Paul was very careful to teach the church, never transgress your conscience. Paul even said to the Romans, he said, whatsoever you can't do in good conscience, it's sin to you. And he was even talking about some things that inherently were not sin, but a group of people that he called weaker brothers and sisters believed these things were sin. And he said, if we pressure them into doing what they can't do in good conscience, it's sin for them. Why would we do that to them? First thing you need to do with your conscience is take care of your conscience and not transgress it. Second thing you need to do with your conscience is make sure it's properly informed. In good conscience, I believe my hair couldn't touch my collar. I believed I couldn't wear a wedding ring. I believed that you couldn't wear any jewelry. In good conscience, I believed that I couldn't play Little League Baseball because it was a worldly amusement. Those things were sin to me. As my conscience was better informed, I found out those things were indeed not sin. I want to ask everybody in the room, in your religious journey, are there things you can do in good conscience now that from your background you used to couldn't do? All you wine drinker evangelicals. <laughs> are there things, listen to me, are there things you can do right now that you used to not be able to do per your conscience? Are you transgressing your conscience? I hope not but you're doing them now because your conscience, you believe, is better informed. I was driven back to the text, and the issue was inclusion. My journey with inclusion is a micro version of the macro version that is the Judeo-Christian tradition. Our biblical text, our biblical story, the story of the Jews, the story of the early Christian church, is a story of a group of people, and a big piece of that story is a story of that group of people wrestling with the matter of who's in and who's out. Do you sense that in Scripture? We've got a lot of stories about who's in and who's out. It is a major motif and theme in our story, isn't it? Who are the people of God? Who aren't the people of God? How do we treat those people who are not the people of God? Let's skip over what we call the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament and go immediately to our testament, this New Testament that we love so dear, these 27 books from Matthew to Revelation. I mean, think about the stories. Think about the story of the Samaritan. It's a story about inclusion, isn't it? It's a story about who's in and who's out. Think about the woman at the well. It's a story of who's in and who's out. Think about the stories in the New Testament of lepers. It's a story of who's touchable and who's not touchable. Think about the temple with its holy of holies, its holy place, its inner court, its outer court, its territory for women, and the court of the Gentiles. Think about our story. It's a story of who's in and who's out. A major motif in the text is a story of a group of people wrestling with this matter of exclusion and inclusion. As a matter of fact, from the earliest days of the Christian church, one of the major issues with this was this question of inclusion and or exclusion. 
Bible says that on the day of Pentecost, the beginning of the Christian church, see this is not a 21st century issue, but all the way back to the deepest roots of the church, on the day the church was born, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit fell and there were 120 people in an upper room, the disciples, the friends of Jesus, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages. They spilled out into the streets and it was such a, an incredible experience. 3,000 people that day were added to the church. Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 8, Acts 9. The church continued to proliferate and grow, and as the church grew, you'll notice that its growth was completely composed of Jewish people. The only people coming to faith in Christ and the reception of the gospel were Jewish people, with the exception of Acts 8 and the Samaritan people, but the Samaritan people were considered half-Jewish, so they got the nod, and because they had some Jewish blood in them, they also were capable of receiving the gospel. And we come to the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. And the Bible says that the guy who had preached the first gospel message on the day of Pentecost, his name was Simon Peter. He was at a place called Joppa. And he was up on a rooftop and he was snoozing. He was taking a nap. And as he was sleeping there, the Bible says that a vision came, a divine vision came. And you remember the story, there was a sheet that lowered out of heaven and it lowered down into Peter's purview, his his line of sight, and there in the dream, God told him to get up, look into the sheet, and when Peter looked into the sheet, there were all kinds of animals. Remember the story? All kinds of animals. And every animal in the sheet were animals that the Jewish family were forbidden to eat. Per the kosher laws of the book of Leviticus, these animals were in the category of the unclean. And the Bible says that when Peter looked into the sheet and he saw these unclean animals, he knew exactly what they were. The voice spoke to him and says, rise, kill, and eat. Now, Peter must have immediately thought that this was the devil because the voice was telling him to contradict what? The biblical text. You say, well, the, the voice wasn't telling him to contradict the biblical text. The voice was telling him to do something. It must have been his misread of the biblical text. Now, this is an interesting story because truly he hadn't even misread the text. The text did say not to eat these animals, and yet the voice is saying eat them. You say, well, the reason that the voice was contradicting the text was because the text was an Old Testament text. You do realize that it was not an Old Testament text to the early church. It was the only Bible they knew. It was the Holy Scriptures that Paul called inspired, and it was the text that they preached Jesus out of. And Peter knew that, and so he argued with the voice, and he said, not so. I can't eat these things because they're unclean because of the biblical text. The second time, the sheet was lowered. The edict was rise, kill, and eat. Can't do it. Biblical text was argued. The third time the sheet was lowered, Peter argued. Understanding now that it was God that he was arguing with, Peter heard the voice of the Lord say to him, strong injunction. The voice of the Lord said, you eat and do not call unclean what I have called clean. 
Peter, not knowing what all of this meant, came down from the rooftop and immediately was met with some men from the city of Caesarea. They came to him and they said, our master, our friend, the leader of our household, a guy by the name of Cornelius, was praying and in a dream he was told to send to the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, this house, and ask for you. The Bible tells us that Peter heard from the Lord and the Lord said to him concerning this, this man Cornelius, this Gentile man has been praying so devotedly that his prayers have come up as a memorial before me. A strange concept. Peter and those Jewish Christians who were with him could not fathom the idea that this Gentile man had the capacity to reach God. And the Bible said that understanding that the vision that he had just received and this edict of cleanness and uncleanness somehow had to be connected to this, Peter and those who were with him went to Cornelius' house. And when they got to Cornelius' house, they engaged Cornelius and they saw that he was incredibly open and Peter began to share the gospel with him. Interesting story. As he shared the gospel with him, the Bible says that he preached and he preached and he preached until finally, as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit of God fell. I want to say something about that. Throughout the book of Acts, the model is always, you preach the gospel, people believe the gospel, after they believe the gospel, they repent of their sins, and then you baptize them, and generally there's some experience with the Holy Spirit. That's the model, 15, 16, 17 times in the book of Acts. Preach, believe, repent, baptize, Holy Spirit, except in this story. Peter preached, they believed, they repented, and there was no water baptism. The Holy Spirit interrupted Peter's preaching, and the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, and when they received the Holy Spirit, the earliest Christians, the Jewish Christians, the Bible said they marveled because they did not believe that this group of people could have any access to God. And that group of people was 99 point something percent of the world. You think we haven't struggled with inclusion? From our earliest days right out of the chute, we believed per our understanding of scripture that 99% of the world had no access to what we had. You know who that world was? You, Gentile people. After the Holy Spirit fell, Peter said something incredibly interesting. He looked around at the Christians who were with him who happened to be Jews, and the Bible says that they were all marveling together that even the Gentiles could receive the gospel, and he made this statement. He said, can we continue to forbid water to them that they should be baptized? Did you hear that line? Can we forbid water to them? The reality was, in the mind of the Jewish Christians, they forbid Gentile people from coming into the waters of baptism. You talk about refusing the sacraments, this was a refusal of sacraments. Peter looked at them and said, can we continue forbidding these people to be baptized? You know why? Because God just baptized them with his spirit, and Peter said, you know what? If God will baptize them with his spirit, I guess we can give them our water. And the Bible said that they were baptized. Peter went back to Jerusalem and he met with the pillars of the church that included James, the brother of Jesus, John, some of the apostles, the Bible said. And these 
Christians were all full of the Holy Spirit, and when Peter came to them, he said, listen, I've shared the gospel with the Gentiles, and they've believed. Immediately, the leaders of the church, this is in the beginning of our story, right out of the chute, the leaders of the church said no. And you know why they said no? Their understanding of the biblical text. The way the biblical text read to them, these people could not receive the gospel. And James, the brother of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, said, no, no, it's not true. And Peter looked at them sympathetically and said, I understand where you're coming from because I felt the same way. And he said to them, but brethren, I was there, and they received the Holy Spirit as did we in the beginning, and we heard them speak with tongues. It's one of the reasons that the tongue-speaking experience in Acts 2 was necessary and in Acts 10 was necessary because the church would not have believed it any other way. And the Bible says the leaders of the Jerusalem church sat back and said, how do we argue with God that he has poured out his spirit on these people that we would not even water baptize, that we wouldn't even share the gospel with unless we heard it in a dream? And the pillars of the church and the Jerusalem church said, we can't argue with God any longer. In none of these circumstances did anybody read the biblical text and say, you know what we need to do? I just read Amos 9 differently. We've got to go to the Gentiles. On this issue of exclusion and inclusion, it is seldom the biblical text that initiates the move. It is almost always incarnational experiences with humans that are so profound that it drives us back to the text and we say, have we read this right? Acts 11, the decision is made that Gentile people can be received into the church. But the Jewish Christians are still wrestling with this. And the Bible says that none of them really have the capacity to go out and share the gospel with the Gentiles with a full heart, with an open heart. But a rogue apostle that came late to the faith by the name of Saul of Tarsus was so ill-received by the Jewish Christian community that he had persecuted that God and Paul worked out a deal and God said, it's probably better for you to go to the Gentiles because you've hurt your Jewish brothers and sisters too deeply for them to ever believe you. And so Paul went out from the church and he began to preach in Turkey and Greece. He began to preach the gospel to all these Gentile people. The first place that he preached the gospel on his, on his journey was to four little churches that we now know as the churches of Galatia, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. Four little churches that we call the churches of Galatia. Paul stopped, he preached, and the majority of people that he preached to were Gentiles. He shared the gospel, they received the gospel. Paul ended his journey, came back to Antioch, and while he was at Antioch, some people came from Jerusalem, some Christians came from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and they said to Paul, listen, if you're gonna to preach to the Gentiles, we know you already have, we need to make it clear to you that it's all right for us to preach to Gentiles and it's all right for us to believe that they can come into the faith, but it is necessary for them that they change their identity. 
it is necessary for them that if they are going to become Christian, they also have to become Jewish and adhere to our Jewish law. While that was happening, another rogue group left Jerusalem and went up to the churches at Galatia behind Paul. And all of those Gentile people who had received the gospel were told by this rogue group from Jerusalem, these Christians from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians were told, you've got to keep kosher, the men have got to be circumcised, and you've got to observe Sabbath. When Paul heard this, he was so incensed that he made his way to Jerusalem and he met with the pillars of the church. And upon meeting with the pillars of the church, he demanded a conference and he said, you cannot do this to Gentile believers. You cannot demand anything other than faith in Jesus Christ and you cannot demand that they change their natural identity in order to become a Christian. They have the capacity with an identity different than yours to be Christians and they don't have to adopt your identity to be Christians. And it is unnecessary. He even fires off a letter to the Galatians, the new Christians, and he says, oh foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? <laughs> Who has confused you? You started so well. And he appealed to them and he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit through the works of the law or just through faith? The Bible says that James, the brother of Jesus, confronted by Paul, yielded. And James, the brother of Jesus, said he's right. They do not have to change who they are in their identity. They do not have to become Jewish. It is an unnecessary thing. And in building his case, James, the leader of the Jewish Christian church, James recounts the story from Acts 11 when Peter came and brought to him the news that the Gentiles had been accepted into the faith at all. And this time, James does something different. And here's my point. As he's building his case, James recounts the story of how Cornelius and his household was filled with the Holy Spirit to his own surprise. But this time, James recounts the story and quotes an Old Testament prophet, Amos. And he says this experience of the Gentiles being included is corroborated by the biblical text. That tells me that four chapters earlier in Acts 11 when he argued and said, no, they cannot be in, he didn't understand Amos this way. But once he acquiesced through human experience and said, no, I get it, they must be in. God has accepted them. He did not throw the text away, but he went back to the text. And upon going back to the text, he read the text like he had never read it before. And now he told the story and corroborated it with scripture. Human experience does not change the biblical text. But these experiences have the capacity to make us go back to the biblical text and say, should we look at this again? There was a group of people that loved God, gave us the prophetic text, and carried those texts for hundreds of years. And after carrying them for hundreds of years, Jesus looked at them one day and said, 
you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me, but you haven't known me. And the Bible said even those that were closest to him, as he began to talk to them about how he must needs go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, the Bible said even those closest to him argued because in their understanding of Scripture, there was nothing in Scripture that yielded the idea of a crucified and resurrected Lord. You say, well, how couldn't they have seen it? How did they not know? Oh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the least of these, the Messiah will come. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. How could they not stand there at the cross and hear Isaiah like a lamb? He was led to the slaughter. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. Surely on him was laid the transgression of us all. Like a tender shoot, he rose up out of dry ground. Call him Emmanuel, born of a virgin, God with us. They carried those scriptures and never were able to interpret those scriptures in such a way that it yielded Jesus in his passion. That's why the Bible says when he got up out of the grave and he met his disciples for the first time, instead of revealing himself, the Bible said he opened their minds and he opened the scripture and he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scripture. And for the first time in 700 years, they saw the scripture properly. We have a long history of carrying a biblical text and being forced again and again and again to go back to that text and ask ourselves, have we been reading this text properly? We have a history since those earliest days of inquisition, crusade, heresy murder, slavery, segregation, misogyny, repression of women. We have major issues that the church has continually there is scarcely a century in the history of the church when we have not been driven by our corporate cultural consciousness and question back to the text to ask ourselves, have we gotten this right? Now, that humility with which we should hold the text does not mean necessarily that every time a question comes up, we should assume we've gotten it wrong. I believe that the majority of issues that we live with as a Christian church, we will continually dust them off, look at them in a modern light, and put them back on the shelf and say, we've got that one right, we've had it right, and hopefully we'll have it right for another thousand years. But that model should at least, and for me, it gave me motivation when confronted with realities and experiences that my heart intuits that God is trying to say something, that model gives me reason and right and responsibility to go back to the text and say, I need to read it again. And through the course of the last 15 years especially, I have gone back to the major biblical text that we have believed were injunctions or commandments denying LGBT inclusion, I have gone back to those texts 
And I am fully satisfied in my heart that I have read them wrong. And reading them now, I believe that they are not commandments against LGBT inclusion or LGBT monogamous, life-giving, faithful relationships. Now, I told you tonight that I was going to give you my journey. I can't give you 15 years of textual study in one 45-minute or 35-minute conversation. But what I told you I was going to do tonight was I was going to share how I have come to this place where I am peaceful and I'm fully willing to have a hundred coffees with as many people who want to sit down and open the Bible. That's what a pastor does and I'm willing to do that. But I think it would be appropriate for me to take the last 25 or 30 minutes that we have and respond to specific questions that you might have concerning the biblical text, concerning science concerning what were those issues that drove me back to the text that made me question whether or not I had this right. I'm totally willing to do that, and so I want to suspend my comments for a moment. That's my journey. That's the story. Now I would open it to you and um, ask you what questions do you have about that. While you're thinking about your questions, let me read something from a doctor that I received lately. It was actually written to another pastor friend of mine in Seattle. But this is the kind of thing that has driven me back to the text. She writes, I really appreciated the Time Magazine article about your ministry and of your being open and affirming. I'm a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist here in Seattle and my specialty includes caring for children, adolescents, and adults with disorders of sex development. Many of my patients are born in the middle of the classic and dogmatic gender paradigm, meaning these children are born with male and female parts. This is more common than you think, and the process of what makes us male and female is a very complex biological process that involves hundreds of genes, hormones, enzymes, and receptors. Since I've been caring for my patients with these identifiable conditions who present at many different times in life, it really illustrates the point that gender is not as dimorphic as we would like to believe, but is indeed a spectrum. When you learn about the science and the complexity, it becomes very hard then to assume what it simply means to be female or male. And it's hard to apply biblical interpretations to what should be considered appropriate gender roles when gender for these dear people is no longer assumed to be dimorphic. I'm sending this email as a devoted Christian and doctor. And I'm sending it to encourage you to continue to be open even if the process is painful for you and your church. You are exposing societal blind spots and you are providing hope to those who do not fit in the classic gender stereotypes. As science and church history march on, if you continue to see and treat each human as one made in the image of God, I believe you will be seen in history of doing God's work. I'm happy to speak with you about the science. I've spoken with many ministers before about this and am a resource. Please keep up the good work of being kind and your church being a place of hope. Sincerely, Anne-Marie Amy's Oschlager, MD, Professor and Director of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, University of Washington School of Medicine, and Seattle Children's Hospital. Two mornings ago, I received a note like this personally. So moved was she 
by what she saw on time.com in our statement of inclusion that a surgical urologist in Florida sent me a very similar email and a link to her TED talk where she had talked about these very things and how they related to faith in the church. Now, that does not change my position, but it gives us reason to say, oh, those of us who almost killed Copernicus and Galileo. It took the Southern Baptist Convention until 1996 to make a formal public apology for their role theologically in slavery. We have a history, and that history gives us reason, Tony, to go back to the text and ask ourselves, have we dealt with drunkards properly? We dealt with drunkards for 19 and a half centuries before we knew anything about addiction. Can we deal better with these people? It's simply reason to go back to the text. Another reason to go back to the text are those people that you grow up with. The boy named Jay that I grew up with that we call Gay Jay and it was funny, and he even learned how to laugh with us. And we all stood around his casket at 25 and tried to figure out how somebody by 25 could die of cirrhosis of the liver and why he would drink himself to death. It doesn't change the biblical text. It just gives you enough pause that you feel a need to go back to the biblical text and say, have we gotten this right? Questions from you guys? Yes. Um, coming from a Church of Christ background, so I've already had some of these conversations with some of my family, and um, the concept that I'm trying to get across to them is that this isn't being viewed as a sin that we are now accepting them into the fold to try to change them. It's um, accepting them as they are and saying, you are how God made you. Come be with us, you know? So um, are there any scriptures that, um, that could point towards, because they are always quoting, it's called an abomination. Right. It's called all these things. So what are the scriptures that are the counterpoint? Well, let's look at, uh, let's look at Genesis 19 and the story of Sodom. In the Hebrew world, the chief virtue was hospitality. And Lot showed that chief virtue by receiving the angels into his house. The men of the city at Sodom came to the door seeking to do what Semitic men commonly did within that culture and show the reverse of hospitality by womanizing these men. What did it mean to womanize a man? It meant, as some of us grew up hearing in the locker room, it meant treating them like a little girl. It comes from the same misogynistic patriarchal culture that allows some of us to still say before we think what we're doing, oh, quit screaming like a girl, as though there's something wrong with screaming like a girl. But we're going to treat you like a girl. We're going to womanize you. We're going to turn you into a woman. The reality is that in the story of, the Sodom, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
those men were not coming with the chief matter being sexual. They were coming to reverse the virtue of Lot, and that was not give hospitality, but dehumanize, womanize these men by pulling them into the street and gang raping them. You want a real problem in the Sodom story? You want real sodomy? You want the worst sin? The worst sin has got to be looking back from our lens that Lot looked out and said, please don't do that to these men, but I have two virgin daughters, take them. Somebody try to find me a worse sin in the story than a father offering his two daughters for gang rape. Is, is there a worse sin in this story than a father offering his two virgin daughters for gang rape? The men in the streets of Sodom were not homosexual men. They were indeed what Paul was referring to in Romans 1 from the ancient world when he said they are men who are leaving what's natural to them. They're heterosexual men leaving what is natural to them, burned in their lust for one another. There's nothing good to do that which is unseemly. The Sodom story can certainly be revisited and looked at in a different way. Go into a prison system today. The great fear, the number one fear for any American male is imprisonment. And any American male will tell you that the fear is, the joke amongst men is, one of those big old fellas is going to get you. And he's going to treat you like a girl. You want the lowest caste of prison society? The lowest caste of prison society are the weak and the vulnerable, those who are womanized, those soft men who are abused, those who are recipients. You want the top caste? The top caste are the penetrators, the top caste are the strong, the control. And they are not necessarily homosexual because when they get out of prison, they go back to their wives and back to their women, but they are men leaving what is natural to them, burned in their lust. And classical society, the Mediterranean society and even the Semitic society, 90% of the literature that refers to homosexual activity has nothing to do with monogamous loving relationships by same-sex attracted people. But almost every occurrence and everything we read in the classical world, even into the era of the Renaissance, is oversexed heterosexual men whose lasciviousness spills over and becomes so inordinate that they don't stay with what's natural to them. So what we have in the biblical text is this. We have healthy heterosexuality, which is monogamous, life-giving, commitment, and fidelity. We have healthy heterosexual activity promoted. We have unhealthy heterosexual activity condemned. We have unhealthy homosexual activity condemned. The question is, what does Scripture say about monogamous life-giving, and does it give a definition of what could be healthy homosexual activity? No, it does not. There is an absence of that as compared to the presence of promotion material on healthy heterosexual activity. So the question interpretively comes, what do we do with the absence of material on this subject? 
1 Corinthians 6, is it referring to homosexuality in toto? Seldom does the biblical text, actually never does the biblical text, just speak of heterosexuality in positive form. The biblical text is very clear. There is healthy heterosexual activity and there's unhealthy heterosexual activity and the Bible makes them clear. One is promoted, one is demeaned and commanded against. Does the Bible make a clear distinction between unhealthy homosexual activity or does the Bible simply say any homosexual activity in toto is bad? 1 Corinthians 6. Some of you with an NIV or some of the more modern translations read 1 Corinthians 6 and it gives a list of people and it says homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that word that is translated homosexual, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, that word prior to 1946 was never translated in any Bible homosexual. As a matter of fact, the word homosexual did not even come into modern usage until probably the end of the 19th century. And in 1946, the first Bible translation translated this Greek word homosexual. And to this day, many Bible translations render it so. Many translations don't render it so. Why is there argument about that word? It's an incredibly difficult word. The word is arsenikoitai. Most of the ways we understand what a word means in the Greek New Testament is we study Greek literature from that era. And almost every word in the Greek New Testament, in our New Testament, is corroborated and used multiple times in other literature outside of our text. Not this word. We cannot find the word arsenikoitai anywhere outside of the biblical text to the extent that many believe this is a word coined by the Apostle Paul. The word is a compound word that takes two words and puts them together and the two words are male and bed. Male bed. And with no external literature giving us an idea, we have to look to the context of how Paul used it and then later how the word is used. And when we look to that context, we're asking ourselves, what does Paul mean by men bed? Now, not every time you put compound word or you put two words together and make a compound word, that word, that compound word is not always the sum of its part. Think about it, butterfly. That's not butter flying around. Honeymoon, that's not a moon made of honey. But in this context, we do think that Paul is trying to say something specific that may be indicated by the sum of those two words. Paul may be talking about men who bed males. Men who bed males are synechoitai. The Bible that you all grew up with, the King James Version from 1611, it translates that, abusers of themselves with mankind. And what we know about the Greco-Roman world was that many men who were the elite in society lived very wanton sexual lives and their concupiscence, their lasciviousness often spilled over the bounds of their marriage and they had female slaves, they had male slaves, and they also commonly practiced what is known as pederasty. And that is the use of young boys. 
for sexual favor. In the era surrounding Jesus, a hundred years in either direction, we only have record of one Roman emperor who did not involve himself in that type of activity. Only one emperor. All of the others, it was well noted that they lived that way. It was a part of society. Elite men had access from fence posts to animals to little boys to women to male slaves. It did not matter but these men were not considered people who had same-sex attraction. They were considered oversexed people who were abusing themselves with mankind. And they were indeed the penetrators. And I want to tell you about Greco -Rome, the Greco-Roman world and the world thereafter. There was no sense that these men were the bad guys. They were the elites, and they could do that, and nobody questioned it. But like prison... Do you know who was the off-scouring of the earth and considered shamed in this activity? The slaves and the boys and the soft men who were the receivers. They were the shame of society. And Paul, like Paul was wont to do, inspired by Christianity's impetus of holiness and morality, Paul brought an injunction to the Greco-Roman world that nobody had ever brought, and he looked at this group of elite abusers, and he said, you know who the real shame is? It's not the penetrated ones. It's the men who are living like dogs and leaving what is natural to them, doing that which is unnatural to them for no other reason that they're burning in their lust. So there are ways contextually to read the text that are not stretching the text, but they're visiting the text through what we know about the era and about the time. Now, do we know that what I just said, which is a cursory overview, is the proper interpretation of the text? No, no more than we know which of the 39,700 denominations are the right one. But we have to read the text, and we have to read the text as well as we can possibly read the text to this issue of natural. In Romans 1, when Paul said, leaving that which is natural to them, I wonder if that is not exactly what we've done to people who are homosexual in orientation by forcing them to leave what is natural to them for reasons other than that is good. Actually, Romans 1 can mean the exact opposite of what we've done to it. And to the issue of unnaturalness, in Romans 1, one other time is the word unnatural used. And Paul later calls the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church unnatural. It is unnatural that the Gentiles have come into the church. But unnatural does not always equate with immoral. One other time that we see unnatural used is 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul said, we know that nature itself teaches that a man should not have long hair. Nature teaches that. But you know what we've done? Women aren't supposed to cut their hair. Men are supposed to have short hair. I grew up like that. Anybody grow up in that? We say, well, that's context. How do you know? 
we inconsistently use that hermeneutic, that interpretive tool of context where it is convenient to us. And that hermeneutic, that interpretive lens should be shared equivalently throughout the biblical text. So I can read Romans 1 today and actually think that's not talking about two people who have had this natural, distinct way of being since they were born, loving one another in a monogamous relationship for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. That doesn't sound anything like a man leaving what is natural to him, burned in his lust for somebody, committing that which is unseemly. It doesn't even seem to be speaking to the same subject. Arsenikoitai, what does it mean? Now, I'm not tonight, this was not a night to try to convince somebody. This was a night to share my journey with this. And to Darman's point, who belongs at Grace Point? People who consider this kind of process holy and life-giving. That's who belongs at Grace Point. Somebody asked me, they said, how did you get so sure? Are you kidding me? If God walked in right now, I wouldn't walk up and high-five him and say, boy, I nailed that, didn't I? I would walk up and say, how'd I do, Lord? And in my gut, or else I wouldn't be here, in my gut, I believe the Lord would look at me and say, you did good. And I would say, did I get it right? I think the Lord would say, mostly. And I would say, Phew. but the mercy is that if you looked at me and say, no, you didn't, but you did good and this process was right. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 said, now concerning the thing of which, talk about divorce and remarriage, concerning the thing of, this thing of which you wrote to me, they were writing to Paul and they were asking him, can a woman divorce her husband who is an unbeliever, most likely because of abuse? The only exception clause that we had from the ministry of Jesus was for sexual immorality. There was no exception clause for abandonment. And Paul looked at this new scenario 30 years after the resurrection, and he said, concerning this of which you wrote to me, I have nothing from the Lord on this. At which point the legalist says, oh yeah, the Lord talked about marriage and divorce and remarriage. Paul said, but you can't cookie cut in something as complex as human life. And Paul said, this is a new scenario. And Paul said, I speak not by commandment, but by permission by God who has counted me worthy by his mercy to give an opinion. And he concludes by saying, I think I have the mind of the spirit on this. The church the Christian church is continually invited by the Bible into a process of not memorizing fixed and final answers, all the answers. Within 30 years after Jesus, Paul was saying concerning this question, I got nothing from Jesus. I got to give an opinion here in a new circumstance. And you know what Paul's opinion was? If the unbeliever chooses to stay, stay. And we lived another 19 centuries giving no exception for abuse because the New Testament ends and gives two exceptions, sexual immorality and abandonment. And the last 30 to 50 years, the church with a heightened awareness of spousal abuse has now said, 
essentially mostly to women who have been battered, you are free in the Lord. And it's a new exception because the church has been brought in and given the capacity by scripture to say concerning this thing, we have nothing from the Lord, we have nothing from Paul, but we do have the spirit of God and we speak as one who's been given permission. And that is a loaded process that we have been involved in for a long time. And that's what the church has been doing the last 30 years intensely on this issue of LGBT inclusion. And at best right now, I carry the spirit and many with me carry the spirit of Acts 15 that it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit. But anytime we're saying it seems good to us and anytime we're saying I think I have the mind of the spirit, that demands tolerance both ways. And it's that spirit of tolerance and that spirit of humility that means you absolutely belong here on both sides of the issue because we might learn something even greater than LGBT inclusion. We might learn how to live with one another in disagreement, in love and forbearance. Imagine that. There might be something the Lord's teaching us here bigger than certainty and accuracy. He might be teaching us here humility, forbearance, tolerance. Another questioner, too. I've tried to hit a lot of the biggies. Is it the church's role to police sin? And is it different? Is, is that role different for a quote member of a local, local congregation versus a non-member? Well, I think anybody who gives their life to a church and is there, I kind of have a soft idea of membership. You're you're a part. Do we police sin? You know, police is a harsh word. I do believe the church should take sin seriously because sin damages us. The Bible says, "Provoke one another to good works." If I see you as a brother in Christ doing something that I believe is damaging to you, your family, it is indeed loving for me to come to you and say, Brian, what are you doing? I don't think that's policing. I think that's caring. So I don't, I don't think what we're saying here is, we're, we're loosey-goosey. We don't believe anything. No, no. I, my LGBT friends care as much about morality and sin as I do. The question is, is this sin? But yes, we still have a loving concern for one another not to live destructively yes can i have five minutes five five minutes take five that's kind of dangerous giving this to a preacher and saying he can have five minutes um coming from a marriage that i was divorced and, and we're remarried and coming from a very very fundamentalist very conservative pentecostal background I know what a lot of you have gone through. I know what it's like to go into church and feel less than. I know what it's like to go into church and know that you can pay your tithes, that you can sit in the chair, that you can volunteer for certain things, but you can never be a leader and you can never be truly, fully, 100% accepted. 10 years ago, my daughter, came to me and confessed that 
she had been in a same-sex relationship for, for about two years. To my shame, my response to her was to take out the Bible and throw it on the coffee table. Slam my hand on top of that Bible. And she said, Daddy, but I'm happy. And I said, I don't care about your happiness. I care about the Word. What will you do with the Word? That was 10 years ago. She's still in that relationship. She loves God today more than she ever did. How did I ever accuse her? And how did I ever accuse all of you? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I made you less than. I'm so sorry that I ever questioned your sincerity. I look around this church right now, and I'm so glad that this place is crowded. I don't see gay people. I don't see lesbians, I don't see transsexual, I don't see bisexual. I see a community of people that are longing to try to get the right answer from God together. Richard. Um, I hear some people say that's not biblical. Can you take two of those scriptures? I don't know where they are or what they are. Take two of those scriptures, quote them or read them, and then explain how it's biblical, how it is biblical. Pat, was he asleep five minutes ago? I just did that on 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 1. And Big Daddy, we'll talk about it later and I'll go over it again. But I just did that. I don't know what else to say, but next. Bob, yes. go, Bob. Stan, uh, could you enlighten me uh, what your thoughts are and what the Bible says about sexual immorality? What is it? Sexual immorality. That, the word that is translated sexual immorality is pornaya, from which we get pornography. Sexual immorality <clears throat> is a broad stroke term. And interestingly, in the 27 books of the New Testament, we don't have exacting definitions. It's very strange to a lot of people that there are no specific descriptions in the 27 books of the New Testament about premarital sex, um, perverted sex. Those things are very generalized in the New Testament. It's almost as though the definition is assumed. The only two texts... I grew up my whole life, premarital sex being a sin. You've got to wait until you're married. It was very strange for me as a preacher to go to the New Testament text looking for the text to preach that. Only to find that there were only two texts that implied that in the entirety of the New Testament. And those two texts are, and talk about implied, Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary and when Joseph found out Mary, his betrothed wife, was pregnant, 
He didn't say, how did we miss this? We didn't do birth control. He knew that the baby was not his because it was assumed in that setting that they had not had sex. And the second text that may be stronger is 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul said, and this is a famous text, it's better to marry than it is to burn. So it seems the assumption was that if you're not married, you're burning. Those are the only two texts. Specifics are not dictated. The only thing that we can think is the reason the specifics are not dictated is one of two things. They are assumed that the church carries those things naturally or some believe the assumption was that they still held that the Levitical law on sexuality was the norm and the rule. The problem with that is the Levitical law is a mixed bag. The Levitical law gives descriptions of how prostitution should be done properly. The Levitical law gives descriptions of why a woman should be a virgin before marriage, but there is no such thing for a husband. The only thing that a male Jew was prohibited to do was to have sex outside of marriage with another man's wife because that's stealing property. And the issue of a woman being a virgin upon marriage was not about sexual purity, it was about the spoiling of goods. And if a man married a woman and she had had sex before and he was not the first, he could take her and her parents to the city gate and burn them. But he could have as much sex as he wanted to as long as it wasn't with another man's. So even the Levitical law doesn't give us this beautiful definition that Christianity has come up with through the years. So for me, sexual immorality, sexual morality and sexual immorality is a definition that has to be extrapolated by the church from the general principles of scripture, and we've done that. And I would say that's why somebody asked, why is the LGBT issue such a huge one, and why did it take us this long to get to it? Because I think the church on matters of sexuality has had strong moorings and strong definitions and those strong definitions are definitions that we have intuited, we've lived out, they're very experiential, they're very incarnational, and to change them is incredibly painful and difficult to the issue of divorce and remarriage. The Catholic Church, understanding the complex humanity of life, decided that they could not reverse scripture, but they created an entire new process that if you had enough money, or enough influence, or a good enough story, you couldn't get a divorce, but you could get an annulment, right? It was into the 20th century before we even began to revisit through the complexity of human life this whole issue of is sexual immorality the only reason? Is there another reason besides abandonment? Can we include abuse? Can we include addiction? On matters of sexuality, because the church has been left to intuit and articulate through experience what morality and what sexual immorality is, because we don't have fixed hard injunctions in scripture on all of these things outside of the Levitical law, which is a mixed bag, we're just very cautious and very slow. And it was one of my first surprises as a pastor 
when I tried to answer Bob's question, what is the biblical definition of sexual immorality by going to scripture, it was not nearly as clear as I had assumed that it would be. But therein lies the work of the church as the body of Christ to do the work of the fleshly word of God and come up with definition. And those definitions should be made carefully, meted out carefully, and they should be adjusted incredibly carefully and cautiously, if at all. That's why we're having a hard time with this one. And that's why churches just don't change overnight. This is a process of discernment. And we have evenings like this. We all know something is deeply at stake here. Richard's question about scripture, I'll give one more. A lot of people point to the fact that in, in the garden, there is this implied model of Adam and Eve, right? It's Adam and Eve, and the old joke was, but there's something to this. It wasn't Adam and Steve, right? And it's painful for a lot of you, but you understand the point. We had the Edenic model. And that is indeed the case. In the Garden of Eden, it was Adam and Eve. We understand that. But Jesus came along in Matthew 18 and was asked the question, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Hearkening back to the question in Deuteronomy 24 where Moses had said a man could divorce his wife for uncleanness. Notice a spouse couldn't divorce their spouse for uncleanness, but a man could divorce his wife for uncleanness. The woman still had no right in this. The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus said, have you not read that in the beginning God created the man and the woman? Two shall cleave to one another and be one flesh. He went back to the ideal. The Pharisees pressed and said, but Moses offered a writing of divorce. And Jesus said, yes, he did because of the hardness of your heart. But in the beginning, it wasn't so. But I say unto you that a man should not divorce his wife except for. And Jesus gave an exception. And I want to tell you about that exception. It wasn't in the garden. But it was an exception that Jesus said, I will give because guess who Jesus is? Jesus is God with us outside of the garden. Because we are not in the garden anymore. The garden will forever be an ideal we shoot for, but Jesus in his exception said, in the beginning it wasn't so, but I say unto you, Jesus is the voice of God that never lets go of the ideal of the garden, but says, I say unto you outside of the garden. And there's no story in the garden of Adam and Eve and Sue if Eve doesn't work out because in the beginning it wasn't so. But Jesus said in this painful circumstance where there has been sexual immorality in a non-Edenic world, I will give this exception. Paul later gave another exception and that was abandonment. Those are non-Edenic realities. Tell you what else was not in the garden. In the garden, it was Adam and Eve and a baby named Seth. And that was the natural way of being in the world. There was nothing in the garden about a 15-year-old girl getting pregnant in the backseat of a car and deciding valiantly to have the baby. 
and giving that baby to a 42-year-old couple who've gone through eight miscarriages, two late term, and spent a quarter of a million dollars on in vitro, battled endometriosis and infertility. And the baby's whisked down the hall as the little girl is stitched back together and placed in the arms of people that the baby doesn't look like. It's an incredibly unnatural process, but it's a beautiful redeeming process that maybe may not fit the model of Eden, but it captures the heart of Eden. And in that adoption, in a non-Edenic way, Eden's heart is fulfilled. Jesus is God with us outside of Eden. And he never lets go of the ideal, but he lives deeply and graciously and redemptively with us in the real. And that's where we live. And for a large group of people, 300 to 350 million people in this world their way of being in this world does not immediately match the Edenic story in terms of gender. But their heart matches the longing just as, though, just as the adoptive parents take that which came not from their womb or loins and love redemptively this baby that is not theirs and is theirs. And so what we're trying to learn through the rubric, the, the hermeneutic that Paul gave us, is to be able to say, now concerning this matter, I have nothing from Jesus, I have nothing from Paul, this is a new reality, but I have the Spirit of the Lord and we've got to speak to this. And that's all the church is trying to do right now on this subject. And it is an incredibly generative, biblical process that is painful for so many. But for the two intersex children that I know of in this community that you will never know of, who are waiting for assignment surgery right now, whose complex mix of genitalia and chromosomes leaves even parents and doctors now guessing for a he or a she. The intersexed among us, there are 26 variations of those human beings. For the little boy who when he hit adolescence began to develop breast buds, for those human beings and many others, they wake up every day in a world east of Eden. And they demand that we bring graciously the Spirit of God into this equation. And I, I think Maybe Romans 1, we have fulfilled and we have demanded that people leave what is natural to them, not burned in their lust for one another, but burned in their desire to be accepted by us 
we force them to leave what is natural to them and do something incredibly unnatural to them, not generative and life-giving. I just think there's a chance that that may be the better way to read that text. It's a profound conversation. And I hope if we've done anything tonight, I've at least let you know that this is a deeply personal quest. And for somebody like me, a pastor in all of this, it's a deeply biblical quest. It's a, it's a quest that is, my ear is pressed to the heart of human beings who are in deep need, who are hurting. Marsha, people who've been willing to walk with me for 20 years, we've been together. Press my ear to the beating hearts of people, come back to scripture and say, oh Lord, I know how I've read this. Help me read it again. And I hope that tonight you sense the humility in all of this, the, the willingness to say we're wrong, and the capacity for us to stay together even if we don't agree perfectly on this. There's something bigger at stake. If we, in an effort to be LGBT inclusive, become exclusive with that, my God, what have we done? Yeah. Inclusion, inclusion demands a spirit of humility. So, Please stay. And the conversation continues. But practically, decisions had to be made. And decisions have been made. And we live together now. And as they said in Acts 15, we're going to ask the first apostolic doctrine. Bob's question, what's sexual immorality? They, they decided... We're going to ask all the Gentile churches to not eat anything offered to idols, don't eat anything that's been strangled, and abstain from sexual immorality with no specifics. And they stepped back and looked at that and said, besides that, we are going to burden them no further. And it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. And it seems good to us in the Holy Spirit that this is the burden that we're gonna to bear together. And for us now, the burden falls on the side of grace and love and inclusion. And it may be a burden now for some of our heterosexual believers who are stretched to their nth degree with their biblical understanding. It may be a burden for you to carry, but carry it a while our LGBT brothers and sisters have been carrying the burden on the flip side long enough. And I think if we carry that burden for a while, I think the Lord will continue to do a work in all of our hearts. Lord, thank you for our night together. Thank you for these good people. Thank you for the capacity to come humbly, acknowledging that on matters of complexity, matters of God and human sexuality, we don't always have acuity and perfect certainty, but we have your grace, your mercy, and your spirit abiding near. 
Bind us together, if not by agreement, bind us together by love. May we carry the burden of inclusion until it is no burden any longer. May we carry this together until there is neither black nor white, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, homosexual or heterosexual, but we are one in Christ. Lord, continue to lead and guide us as you promised by your Holy Spirit. And above all, may we be good to one another and may our hearts be right. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Thank you. Next Wednesday night, we're going to talk some more on another subject that's really important in the life of our church. And if you could help us out. Yeah, we just need six or eight um, of you to help us stay. We need to reset up for this conference.